Uh, we're going to continue then together with our long-term um, Bible study series, which is on the self-revelation of God and Scripture. And I look back on the first um, study that we did all those months ago, just to remind myself um, of what the purpose of this study is. The problem with a, a very long-term study is that you can get off track. Um, and and appears that I said these three things that the purpose of this series is to first of all to trace and understand how God has revealed himself through his holy word the Bible and the second purpose of the series is to understand the structure and the flow of God's revelation of himself to us and the key concepts we need to understand the Bible at a deeper level. So an example of that would be the, the concept of covenant, which we, we're talking about at the moment. And then thirdly, and lastly, beginning with the Old Testament, we will see the connection and unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, mm -hmm. and the progression to the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus, his Son. I'll have to leave it to you to see to know if we're making any progress on that. But that, that is the purpose of this study. So the practical outcome of this is, God willing, is, is that it's just sharing um, some of the strategies or keys for reading the Bible and explaining, trying to explain at least, how, how it all hangs together to enhance your reading of the Bible so that it will be enriched and deepened. So by the end of this, you'll, you'll know as much as I do. <laughs> I've given it all away. <laughs> um, you see, too many people read the Bible like it's, a, like it's a Chinese fortune cookie. I don't know if you've ever been in a Chinese restaurant and had a Chinese fortune cookie. You break it open and there's a little, um, there's a little wish or a fortune saying in it. And you can read the Bible like that. You can just pick up the Bible in the morning and just turn randomly to a passage and, think, and just read it just in terms of you know, what, what is God saying to me about my personal problems that isn't the way to read the Bible the comfort and um, the comfort and strength and value of the Bible comes from understanding its main purpose and story and we need to read the Bible as it is meant to be read and we've reached the point in God in this series where God has made a covenant with Abraham called the Abrahamic covenant and we've begun to look at the um, general character or characteristics of this covenant this is important we're dwelling on this because when we say the covenant with Abraham the New Testament takes the Abrahamic covenant and effectively uses it synonymously with the covenant of grace or the gospel. So everything we say about the Abrahamic covenant, or at least most of what you can say, you can say about the gospel. You can say about God's plan of redemption. So by describing and understanding the covenant with Abraham, you really understand the covenant of grace. You really understand the new covenant. And um, the covenant with Abraham 
is not the beginning of the covenant of grace, but it is that the beginning of the covenant of grace we've studied many times, Genesis 3.15, that promise, that um, first gospel. Um, But here in this covenant with Abraham, there's a giant step forward. Genesis 3.15 is very shadowy and murky and um, it's not that clear. It's there, but it's, it's all shrouded in mystery. But when we get to the covenant with Abraham, it's so much clearer what God's plan of salvation is going to be. Um, there is, uh, <clears throat> according to Genesis 3.15, the promise of a coming hero, a Messiah, who will rescue the fallen people of God. And the the covenant with Abraham advances that plan considerably we studied in this series how through Noah God established a covenant of common grace which added something to the covenant covenant of grace in terms of it, it was a promise of preservation there was no salvation in it as such but it was a covenant of common grace which promises to preserve the world Um, God promised that he would no longer flood the world to eradicate wickedness there's no point in having a plan of salvation there's no point in having a covenant of grace if there's no world to save God preserves the world he promises he will not destroy the world um, until or to enable the gospel the Abrahamic promise to to fulfill itself through history and so in our recent studies we have begun to describe this character of this Abrahamic covenant and we've drawn out um, the different doctrines that the story of Abraham brings out and we first of all studied how it was a covenant of promise and last time we, we studied how this covenant with Abraham was characterized also by the fact that it is um, an exercise of God's sovereignty, particularly in election, in God's electing, his choosing. Um, And again, as I say, that is a characteristic of salvation. There's a big element of it is God's election. Um, In other words, it's a covenant where God takes all the initiative. In Genesis 17, verse 2, it says, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. You see that all the emphasis is on I, God, Jehovah, will make my covenant between me and thee. And last time we noted the sovereign work of God in the genealogy in Genesis 11, how God is electing, narrowing down the covenant family to the point where we get to Peleg. Peleg means division. And then there were these two branches of human um, families and one narrowed down into the Messiah line, down to Abraham. And that's really where we've landed. We've landed at Abraham and this covenant that God made with Abraham. And we know from Joshua chapter 24 that Abraham was was no seeker of God at the beginning. Uh, He was worshipping idols like the rest of his family. 
But God appeared to him, Genesis 12, God appeared to him and called him. Uh, he set him and his family apart. And this doctrine of election continues in the lives of, of the patriarchs, uh, the family of Abraham. Um, most notably in the New Testament, the um, story of Jacob and Esau, how Jacob was chosen over Esau is discussed in Romans 9. And we looked at that last time. Um, not the easiest chapter, and I think I may have lost, lost you a bit on that, but Romans 9 is saying how God chose Jacob in a, covenant of, in a covenantal sense to continue the promised line but also in an eternal saving sense to belong to God forever. Jo Jacob is chosen over his older brother Esau, which was very unusual. Um, it's usually the older who will receive the privileges. But Paul emphasised that before either Esau or Jacob had done anything good or before they'd done anything bad, um, God had made his choice. He'd chosen Jacob passed by Esau and chosen Jacob. Both are sinful, but God chooses Jacob. And we studied in Romans 9 how that in itself, or partly, I think best to say partly answers the question that Paul poses, is God not true to his promise? That was the question Romans 9 is answering. Is God not true to his promise? I.e., is God not true to his promise that he made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant? That's what Romans 9, Romans 9 answers. Because if God elects Abraham and his children, how is it that Israel, the nation, forfeits uh, God's promise? And we saw last time how the answer to that question is that in the typological kingdom, um, there are two levels of fulfilment the kingdom would be fulfilled um, in, as a picture in the Old Testament story of Israel but also in, a, in an eternal spiritual sense the children of Abraham would be the fulfilment of the kingdom of Christ the seed of Abraham in the non-typical eternal sense are those who are elect in Christ by the work of the spirit the true Israel, those who are on their way and in a sense already are um, in the true promised land of heaven because they are elect according to promise. So there are these two um, levels by which we understand the promises to Abraham. Um, and we noted last time how in the typical kingdom of Israel, um, in order for Israel to stay in the land of Canaan, they had to obey the law. There was a works principle. Um, they only stayed in the. They only were allowed to stay in the land if they obeyed the law. As soon as they uh, uh, broke the law, the land would vomit them out. That's what happened. They were under a works principle. Um, so covenantly, covenantally, as a nation, Israel failed. They were exiled out of the land. And in AD 70, the, the curse of the breaking of that covenant came to fulfillment when Jerusalem was destroyed. Mm -hmm. The broken covenant, the punishment of a broken covenant was executed fully. 
But Paul's argument, which we discussed last time, is that the true Israel in Christ, the elect of the Old Testament, Jew and Gentile, mainly Jew, but including some Gentiles, was always saved by election, always saved by grace, and never saved by the works principle. The works principle applied to Israel as a nation, those who were elect according to promise, the true children of Abraham, of whom we, of whom we are too, were always saved by election and grace, exactly the same basis as a New Testament believer is saved today. That's what Romans 9 is saying. Also referred to as the remnant. The Old Testament remnant, Paul argues, were the true Israel, Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant are the true Israel saved by election. Galatians 3. Those who are in Christ are those who have received the real, true promise of Abraham. But, I need to, cut, I need to put a but in here. We must not either, in our understanding of this covenant, neglect the typical, the typological level of this covenant either. Now, typological does not mean that, does not mean that these promises to Abraham were not real or actual. Some of the promises to Abraham were very physical and real and of this world. Um, they speak of higher and deeper heavenly things, but some of the promises were very um, real. So the Lord, in a very real and earthly sense, promised to Abraham a multitude of descendants. Uh, they would become the Jewish nation. They would become Israel. You could spiritualize that, as, as Paul does in Romans 9, but there's also a first-level meaning. There was actually... A country of Israel that was established. Um, Abraham's family would inherit real land, physical land you could stand on. Canaan was a picture of heaven, but it was also a real land. It was a real territory with boundaries. And God promises this these real things that have deeper meanings. Does that make sense? And so there are these typological significances which structure the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. They have a first level fulfillment, an earthly, real, practical fulfillment. And on top of it, it has this heavenly, this New Testament spiritual meaning as well. Um, but this first level fulfillment, this real earthly level is very important too. It's not the main point of the New Testament, although it does cover it, but it is also, it is vital for this plan of redemption. Um, you see, in Genesis 12, we see the election of Abraham's family. Um, and this really, this election of Abraham's line, which led to Israel, is really the story of the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, generally speaking. The survival of Israel as a nation was vital 
because God had promised that the Messiah would be born of Israel. And so, when you read your Bible, if you get lost when you're reading the Old Testament, remember that what ties it all together is a story. Um, from Exodus to Malachi, is, is how is this Messiah, first promised in Genesis 3.15, going to be born in a nation surrounded by enemies trying to kill it and destroy it? And how is, is this Messiah ever going to be born when the nation from whose womb the Messiah would come is forever apostatizing, forever rebelling against God, literally rotting from the inside and under the judgment of God. It looks very unlikely. And the story of the Old Testament is how God um, ensures by his sovereign power how this Messiah comes through the womb of Israel and we get to Matthew chapter 1 so the key to understanding the Old Testament stories is to keep in mind this constant spiritual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent Satan actually is rarely mentioned in the Old Testament I think it's probably about four or five times I think it's four times Satan is mentioned but he's there all the time in the background um, always behind the scenes trying to destroy Israel either through her enemies or external enemies without or trying to destroy Israel from within um, so you can read Judges for example that makes sense of Judges that trying to internally corrupt the nation to stop the seed of the woman being born to tempt Israel to be so unfaithful that they would lose their status as a nation to tempt Israel to intermingle intermarry with the nation so to such a degree that they would lose their identity that they wouldn't be Israel no longer so that the Messiah wouldn't be born you see Satan is there fighting the whole time against the seed of the woman trying to thwart a thwart, I can't say that word Genesis 3.15 and Satan knew that promise Satan's goal was to stop the Messiah from being born that's, that's a good key to read the Old Testament and that is why when Christ appears on the scene in, in the Gospels you'll notice that all of Satan's energy is no longer against a nation Israel it now focuses and zooms in not on a nation but on a person Jesus Christ our Lord and so there is this unified common story if you, want, if you wonder when and I used to a bit um, what to do with all those stories in 1 Kings for example all these kings all this, this political intrigue um, well the big picture is answering this question is this nation going to survive with all this happening will the promised saviour be born and that's the theme of Israel's election and preservation
So that's what really we were trying to say last time. I think I said it a bit better tonight than I did last, than I did last time. It's an exercise of God's sovereignty. Um, and it's an exercise of God's sovereignty, this, this covenant with Abraham, in two ways. An election, which we've covered last time. And this is the bit I didn't get to last time, and I want to cover it, and it's probably all we're going to be able to do. It's an exercise of God's sovereignty, not just in terms of election, but it is also an exercise of God's sovereignty in terms of God's sovereign power. His election and his power. Um, sovereign, his, God's sovereign power is seen so clearly and, and it's needed so badly because Satan's opposition is so vehement it's so vicious um, God's power is needed to fulfill the promises made to Abraham God made these promises in Genesis 12 1-3 and God made an oath that he would keep them but that's not enough in and of itself we, we, can, we can all make promises and we can all promise to keep them but we have to have the power to ensure that those promises are kept unless there's a God big enough and strong enough and powerful enough to, to follow through on those promises then the covenant's not worth anything they had to be realised these promises had to be fulfilled and many obstacles stood in the way before the promised Christ could come and a major theme and characteristic of this covenant is the power of God, the power of the God who made it, and his ability to keep the promises he made. Now, remember what I said at the beginning, whatever we say about the Abrahamic covenant, we're really saying about the gospel, we're really saying about the covenant of grace. And it's true there, isn't it? The whole thing relies on the power of God to save he initiates salvation. Um, it is his power, not our power. And there were so many obstacles uh, in the way. Um, as we read the well-known stories about the patriarchs, for example, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we constantly see the supernatural overcoming of almost impossible obstacles mm -hmm. to the promises coming true. Mm -hmm. um, we think um, of the birth of Isaac. Mm -hmm. um, his birth, Isaac's birth, was an exercise of God's power. He was the child of promise he was born to Abraham when Abraham was a hundred just over a hundred Sarah's reaction to the concept of having a baby at their age was to laugh um, it was laughable to them and later she said God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me if you, I don't know if there's been a time in your life it happens to me sometimes where either I read something or God does something and it's so amazing to start laughing it's not an irreverent, an irreverent laugh it's just 
an admiring laugh. Like when somebody does something so amazing, you just think, wow, I'm just laughing at that. That's the kind of laugh Sarah had there. And as an adult, Isaac's, as an adult, another example, as an adult, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. And Isaac entreated the Lord to exercise his power. And do you know what? God intervened and God said to Isaac and to Rebekah, the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. God gave her two nations in her womb. She was barren. You see, with God all things are possible, the Bible says. And we could go through example after example, from Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. God's power, his sovereignty, exercised all the time to fulfill the promise made to Abraham in this Abrahamic covenant. And so the first level meaning of all the stories of the rest of Genesis and, and beyond um, is in this context, this preservation of this holy seed. Just thinking, if we go back a bit again to Abraham, his uh, life was coloured by um, prolonged delay in having Isaac and this son of promise. Isaac was the alpha point of the messianic line. All the promises depended on it. But Sarah was barren and had no child. And her, her barrenness continued way past childbearing age. But God sovereignly intervened. And the writer to the Hebrews picks this up saying, Through faith also Sarah received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even as one and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. All that is God's work, dear friends. The power of God. So impossible were things looking that the Apostle Paul says Abraham had to believe in hope against hope. That's some hope. When you have to believe in hope against hope. That really means you have to believe in the face of sheer impossibility that God is going to come through that God will keep his promise he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old neither the deadness of Sarah's womb he didn't look at the impossibleness of Sarah's womb and of his old age own age is in, well, infertility is the wrong word but he, he'd gone beyond natural fertility as a man and she had as a woman and even when she was of childbearing age, she was barren. She was doubly barren. Now. And now God intervenes and gives the child of promise. And then consider how Abraham nearly wrecked everything himself, twice in fact, when he nearly lost Sarah by concealing her true identity in Egypt and in Gerar later on 
And God had to intervene on both occasions to preserve Sarah from the hands of, of men because Abraham was pretending she was his sister. It took God in his sovereign power not only to elect but to preserve and to keep the son who was to be born to the barren and the dead. Sometimes, you know, in our lives, God's sovereignty is, is, is exercised against our own stupidness, against us. He preserves us from us by those stupid mistakes we make. Um, and, and that's what he did with Abraham. He nearly lost the mother of the child of promise. She could have been raped or married off or whatever. But God preserved his promise, kept his promise. Um, think of Genesis chapter 22 um, where Isaac was told to sacrifice um, um, Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac after all this waiting after all this um, now Sarah now becoming pregnant God says uh, and Isaac being born God says take your son up this mountain and sacrifice him Now that was going to guarantee for sure the Messianic line coming to an end, being extinguished. Um, Hagar, the slave that he had a child with, um, Ishmael, that was, he, was not the, he was not the son of promise, Abraham knew that. But God says, sacrifice Isaac. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham laid hold on God as the omnipotent sovereign God who if, a, if necessary was able to raise Isaac up even after he had been killed. Mm. That was the faith that Abraham had that God had made a promise that through Isaac the seed would your seed be the promise would come through Isaac Abraham knew he had such faith that even if he plunged a knife into the heart of his son he believed Isaac would be risen, raised from the dead. And as ever, the Apostle Paul um, hones in, if you like, on the revelatory significance of all of this. In Galatians 4, which we read just now, Paul describes the principle operating in the birth of Isaac as the principle of promise. Galatians 4 verse 23 says, But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. And Paul also describes the principle operating in the birth of Isaac as spirit, capital S, spirit. Galatians 4 verse 29 But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit even so it is now. So what Paul is doing he's picking up this story of Abraham and he's saying both principles of promise and spirit in the birth of Isaac stand in sharp contrast to the principle operating in the birth of Ishmael 
the child of the slave which is described as a birth operating by the principle of flesh um, some commentators think that Abraham as a way of trying to do God's work for him um, tried to have, you know, had, a, had a baby with um, Hagar I'm not so sure uh, there's no direct criticism anywhere of Abraham marrying Hagar but um, whatever the birth of Ishmael was of the flesh in other words it was a wholly natural non-miraculous birth well I suppose all births are miraculous at one level but it was just a natural birth of a baby Isaac's wasn't uh, there's nothing natural well exaggeration it was a real birth a natural birth but it was a, a miracle it was a miraculous birth um, and the birth of Isaac speaks to the promise and the power of the Holy Spirit in the uh, covenant with Abraham standing in contrast to the natural fleshly birth of Ishmael Genesis 4.29 he that was born after the flesh and Paul relates these two births or these two birth principles to the contrast between the free grace in the gospel which leads to freedom and the works principle operating in the law which leads to bondage now this text Galatians 4 verse 21 to 31 is not the easiest text in the Bible the Apostle Peter spoke of um, the Apostle Paul and said as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to, to be understood and I think this passage may have been one of them but simplifying this to an almost ridiculous level um, and, and we'll miss a great deal of it the best way to understand this passage is, to, is just to um, see that Paul sets up two comparisons or two contrasts in this text in verses 22 to 23 he contrasts the two sons of Abraham Isaac and Ishmael and in verses 24 and 27 he contrasts two mountains Mount Sinai and Mount Zion and he does this directly after he poses the following question in chapter 4 verse 21 in that verse he says tell me ye that desire to be under the law do ye not hear the law so we need to pause there a bit what Paul is doing is showing that the systems of grace and law cannot, cannot exist together as principles in our Christian lives and I'll go on to clarify what I mean um, and he proves this by using the Old Testament story of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant so these Galatian believers or some of them at least wanted to live 
under the law. Now, Charles Spurgeon helps us here, um, as he often does. Um, and he focuses on the word under. They wanted to live under the law. And Charles Spurgeon says, he says this. Um, and I think this will help us to understand, as Christians, how to relate to the law. So Spurgeon says, what is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. Get that. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. That's good, isn't it? Mm. So the law is not above us, as the Galatians, some of those Galatians believers, they wanted to go back to the law being above them. In other words, as the system under which um, they related to God. And Galatians, and Paul says, you cannot um, live the Christian life with the law above you. Effectively saying the law has to be under your feet as the road upon which you walk. And that's why he says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? In other words, he's saying, they were not handling the Old Testament scriptures correctly. And he, and he tells them and shows them what the Old Testament is really teaching by contrasting the two sons of, I, of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, and contrasting the two mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. By making these comparisons, he draws lessons which will teach these Galatians the true use of the law in the Christian life. I hope that made some sense. And to summarise, and we're coming to an end, Paul says, you who, um, you who are not listening, I'm, I'm, paraphrasing, I'm paraphrasing this really just to help us to understand. Paul, Paul is saying, you, you lot, if you like, you are not really listening to what the law says. You, you who want to be under the law as a system. The scripture really is saying that Abraham had two sons. Now, the Jews, the religious Jews particularly, they were, they were forever going on saying we were the son, that we are the sons of Abraham. But they often forgot that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. One was a child of promise, one was a child of flesh. And Paul is saying that many of you who want to go back to the law as your system are really the children of, of the slave. You're the children of, uh, you're, a children, you're a child of Hagar, not of Sarah. You are of the child of the flesh, not a child of the promise. Scripture says that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave wife and the other by the free-born wife. 
the slave son was born perfectly naturally but the son of the freeborn wife was born in fulfilment of God's promise and Paul is saying all this can be construed in a symbolic way that's what the rabbis often did with the Old Testament using rabbinic teaching or not rabbinic teaching but a rabbinic style of teaching all this can be seen as an allegory for these women the slave and the free represent two covenants the slave stands for the covenant made at Mount Sinai it's where the Ten Commandments where the law was made all her children those under that covenant are in spiritual bondage but the heavenly Jerusalem stands for the freeborn wife and she is the mother of us all now it's difficult language I know that he's using here but he's basically saying you Christians are children born in fulfilment of God's promise like Isaac was you're not born naturally you're born of a supernatural miracle you are not children of the slave wife and, and Christ has given you freedom so you must stand firm in that freedom and do not allow yourselves to be yoked again to bondage to the bondage of the law you see I think this is why there's so much emphasis in the story in Genesis of how Hagar and Sarah could not stand each other that they could not live in the same house could they they fell out the whole time they hated each other and there was jealousy there was conflict there was incompatibility the whole time and that is God saying there is no compatibility between living under the law as a system of salvation and trying to live under grace as the system they will they will fight there will be conflict they can't live in the same house and God told Abraham to send Hagar away to drive her out into the desert and in like manner every Christian must send away cast out the idea of relating to God on the principle of law cast out the bondwoman and the son anyone who makes law keeping central in their life in their Christian life is a slave but when grace is central then Christ the love and love the love of Christ the grace of Christ is central so what has all that got to do with our main point this evening that the Abrahamic covenant is characterized by God's sovereign power well I think it's this that legalism uh, and Christians that tend to legalism they don't really have faith in the power of God they don't really have faith in the power of God to save and to keep them they think that they can and that they have to do God's work for them by keeping the law through their own efforts through putting themselves under the law as a system 
Behind every spiritual problem there is unbelief. Unbelief in God. God can't work with unbelief. He can work with everything. But once, if there's unbelief in a room, the Holy Spirit can't... You grieve him, you quench him, like a dove he flies away. Unbelief is a killer. It's a killer in a, in a church, it's a killer in a Christian life. And to want to be under the system of law is unbelief in the sovereign power of God's ability to save by grace and what you and I have to understand this evening about ourselves if we're truly Christian is that we are the result of a supernatural miraculous work of God we are born according to promise Born by the work of the Holy Spirit and not according to the flesh. It's an amazing thing. And one of the most important and um, I think least understood things is how as Christians we must relate to the law. Um, there seems to be awful, an awful lot of confusion. Um, how do we as a Christian relate to the law of Moses? Um, now what is the law of Moses well it divides neatly well actually it doesn't divide neatly it divides roughly it's not neatly at all in actual fact but you can divide it into three parts the law of Moses there's the ceremonial law you get all those uh, sacrifices and rituals there's the civil law where you're, you know, you're told you have to build a parapet around on, on your terrace at, on top of your house so people don't fall over and things like that. There is the um, civil law, the laws, and there is the moral law. And the reformers in the Reformation taught that the ceremonial law had ended with the New Testament, that the civil law had expired but that the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments has an ongoing obligation for the whole world. Why? Because the Ten Commandments represent God's eternal law which is planted into the um, fabric of nature and into the conscience of every single human being. Romans 2.14 is the proof text for that. Um, we have to be careful there because all the law of Moses the ceremonial and the civil um, are authoritative for the Christian for the church because it is the word of God um, it's not extant as a way we don't have to keep um, with all those sacrifices because they're, they're all ended but it is still the word of God um, full of types and shadows uh, of the Messiah to come and so in that sense the, the, the civil law and the ceremonial law are very much important for us still um, even the civil law points to how to love and um, create equality amongst God's people but it's the Ten Commandments the moral law that is so important for us to try and understand. How do we relate to the Ten Commandments? 
given that Paul is saying you are not under law but under grace um, and so it was John Calvin wasn't it who building on the insights of Martin Luther who taught that the moral law in the Ten Commandments had three purposes or <coughs> three uses um, now, he divided it into three I don't think it's actually quite as neat as he made out but I think roughly speaking we can accept that there are these three um, purposes to the Ten Commandments for the Christian I'm now talking about for the Christian um, um, for the Christian actually the third use is for the Christian the other two are for everyone so the first use of the Ten Commandments is to condemn sin. We can all think of verses which talk about that. The purpose of the law is to condemn sin. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15, I think, says the strength, the strength of sin is the law. It gives it, um, the law is like a torch on, onto the darkness of sin. It brings it to light. Without law, there isn't really sin because it's law is telling you what is right and what is wrong so the moral law condemns sin secondly the moral law restrains sin in society through government through civil agencies through um, well even through the church in times past so the moral law has a restraining effect but then thirdly, and this is where Calvin really added to the Reformation and our understanding. He said the moral law has a positive role in the Christian life. First to teach the, Christians, the Christian God's will and to exhort the Christian to obedience. This is what Spurgeon was saying. The law becomes a road, a guide, a path. So... The law teaches us as Christians God's will. Now we want to, to obey God, to do, his, to do what he wants us to do. Or how do we know what he wants us to do? We know through his law. We wouldn't know otherwise, would we? And so, that is the purpose, the positive role. That is our relationship to the law as Christians. Not being under the law as a system but the moral law in the Ten Commandments teaches us what God's will is in other words the law helps those who have the Holy Spirit to do what they already desire to do that's the big difference is that the law now simply aids us in doing what we already want to do which is obey God because we're, we're children of the Spirit we're children born of the Spirit with new appetites, new desires and like um, ju and just as deeply as uh, we, are, we have DNA coded into our bodies the law of God is coded into our new life and the law is no longer a curse for the Christian it's our guide to obey God freely by the Spirit, not as slaves, but as children of promise. 
And so you and I, dear friends, by God's power, as a result of this covenant that made with Abraham, are um, miracles of the new birth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Each one of us. No matter what, who we are, whether we're rich or poor, young or old, if you're a Christian, you're an absolute miracle. And you're an absolute miracle of God and of his power. He elected you and by his power he saved you and by his power he's keeping you. And that is a result, dear friend, of God's power in this covenant of grace. So I pray tonight you will understand something of the amazing truth of this um, covenant made by God with Abraham all those years ago. Amen. Amen.